Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Now, Ms. Wolf, over the course of this long and contentious campaign, you've had some very harsh things to say about your opponent, Mr. Cornfoot. Not only him, but his family. You mean like how fat his mama is? Yes, sure. That his is mama's the... so fat, I took a picture of her last Christmas, and it's still printing out. But what does that really have to do with Mr. Cornfoot's suitability for office? When she wears a yellow raincoat, people yell, taxi! I just don't understand why it's so inevitable that two political candidates hate each other. <laughs> That's what I keep asking myself. I don't even recognize the person I've turned into. I would never say anything like that about anybody. And the whole Cornfoot family, they just seem like such sweet people. <laughs> Please, get a grip on yourself. Why don't you just stop saying these things? I don't know. Something just comes over me in political campaigns. It's it's almost like a smell coming from the opposition, and I just, I just go crazy. Now that you understand it, you can stop saying things about Mr. Cornfoot's mama. I can. I can. But the thing is that his daddy is so short that he can hang glide on a Dorito. Oh, I did it again. Today on The Nose, let's talk about how and why political campaigns get so down low and personal. Also, why brunch is disgusting. And now he's seven Bloody Marys into his day. Colin McEnroe. She really is very emotional about that. And I don't blame her because there is something that does happen in these political campaigns. And we will talk about that today on The Nose. Rand Cooper, uh, author, uh, short story writer, restaurant critic, Bon Vivant, is with us uh, from, from Trinity College. Professor Luis Figueroa is with us. And from The Cut, a magazine for the disgruntled and rapidly aging young adults of Connecticut, Teresa Kramer is with us. So, um, yeah, I, you know, we've been sort of kicking a lot of topics around as we've uh, gotten ready for the nose today. But one that I kind of brought up partly as a result of having moderated a gubernatorial debate yesterday was, you know, I, you, we're not unaccustomed to seeing this uh, animosity building up and building up uh, between two political candidates right now uh, for Dan Malloy and Tom Foley. It's about as bad as it can get. Um, they are bringing up all kinds of horrible, venomous, toxic uh, charges against one another and digging deep into one another's histories in their rhetoric about one another. There were some moments yesterday where they went to places I hadn't heard them go before, but it made me wonder. And by the way, we'll, we can play some examples of that for you, although I just obviously will further muddy the waters here. And it made me wonder why this is. Why does that happen so often? And I think most of us imagine, at least I imagine, if I were running for elective office, that, you know, I mean, I, I, I would be able to get along with the other person. And I would, you know, be even able to say nice things about the other person and then just say, but, you know, he's wrong about everything, but he's a nice guy. And, uh, you know, I mean, pick the one of us you think will do the best job. I mentioned this just to an actual political operative today, someone who has managed campaigns, and that person laughed in my face and said, the only reason that you say that is because you've never been through a political campaign. Um, so I don't know. I just I started to wonder if this were true. So 
Um, Rand, uh, and we'll, we'll get even to some possible biochemical reasons why things like this may happen. But, but um, Rand, I know that you watched the, the debate yesterday. And, and I mean, what happened in the debate is not out of the ordinary. It happens all the time in political campaigns. But do you wonder the same things that I wonder? Or do you, is it natural to you that two bodies on a collision course like this will just naturally start flailing at one another? I watched the debate um, closely yesterday, and uh, I certainly found what happened to be normal and routine. And perhaps for that very reason, I I just felt overtaken bit by bit by a really dismal feeling. (laughs) And I I thought back to an email back and forth that you and I had a couple of months ago, Colin, after Ralph Nader published a piece in in The Current about the importance of third-party candidates. This is when Jonathan Pelto was still uh, – when, when we thought he still was going to be a candidate. And um, you remember I, I criticized uh, Nader's, Nader's uh, reasoning and, and said, in effect, I really think this only makes sense, a third-party candidacy, if you say there really is no appreciable difference between the two candidates and the two parties. And what I found yesterday watching was that, you know, certainly my my political uh, convictions are straightforward. They're left Democrats. So you could tick off the issues that were discussed yesterday and I felt clearly Malloy um, uh, was better. But in the way the two expressed themselves personally and went at each other, just seemingly unable not to drive this thing to the lowest level. Now, your political consultant friend laughed at you because they know that this works. They, it's all, it's all, it, it's all tested and, but, and yeah, polled. But, uh, but I don't think it's an issue of it whether it works or not. I mean, there's there's the whole idea that negative advertising works. I get that. But th- there's I often see, and we're seeing it now, genuine, real animosity, a real hatred. I mean, these two men do not well, like one another. They're not pretending. No one's telling them to go negative. But it's not just that they don't like one another. What what seemed particularly discouraging yesterday was the sense that if you're going to get to a certain level in politics. By the time you do, you've been remade in a Darwinian sense into a person who's only capable of certain survival-related skills and totally incapable of other kinds of skills which voters would love to see deployed. You kept giving them a chance, and specifically in your last question, to enunciate in a straightforwardly positive fashion some vision of who they are. You said, in effect, what guides you, what what principles, ideas, figures guide you in your life of decision-making. Each one of the two candidates took about 30 seconds to make a nominal, oh, family, my, my, my spouse, Jesus, and then they immediately with really contorted segues, began to attack each other once again. For me, that was the nadir. That was the absolute low moment. They couldn't not do what they were doing, no matter how many chances you gave them. See, Teresa, here's the weird thing about this to me. There aren't that many other walks of life or areas of life where you can routinely be so openly hostile towards anybody else. I mean, you can't even advertise toothpaste that way. You can't come on as Colgate and say, you know, Crest is just crap, you know, and I mean, it doesn't work and it's terrible and the people who run it are a bunch of morons with no values. I mean, you, you can't do that anywhere except military campaigns and political campaigns. Maybe that's why they're called campaigns. Well, I, I was thinking for, for a minute there, I was thinking, oh, well, maybe in the sports arena you can do this. But no, I mean... Trash talking. 
Yeah, tr- trash talking. Trash thing. talking. Yeah, but they don't really hate each other. I mean, they switch teams all the time. At the end of the game, they go slap each other's butts, whatever they do. And when <laughs> and when Derek Jeter retired, you know, the Red Sox had a had a classy going away party for him. It, it, even in an arena where your job is to beat each other, hit each other, even even boxers don't necessarily hate each other this much. Well, the trash talking before boxing matches mm-hmm. at, at a certain point reached a kind of almost tongue-in-cheek performance mm-hmm. where the trash talking was joking. I'd love to see candidates go at each other the way <laughs> Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier used to. It was all just a, just a choreographed, you know, funny thing. I mean, enough, Luis and I have probably spent more time around boxers than, than you guys have. <laughs> and, and, well, we're both a little bit interested in boxing. And, you know, the thing that always strikes me about boxers, not that there haven't been boxers who have really hated one another or who have in the case of case of Joe Frazier, just felt very emotionally and psychologically bruised by an opponent. An opponent he ultimately felt that he had been dehumanized by, by Ali's taunting. But by and large, boxers are among the nicest people I've ever met in my life. When they're not trying to kill each other in the ring, uh, most of the ones that I've known, if you're just hanging around with them, you know, on a Saturday afternoon or something, they're, really, <laughs> they're extremely nice people and they're not even remotely aggressive. Uh, well, I, I would say uh, as someone who played sports uh, growing up and uh, sports fan and teaching class on sports, race and nationalism at Trinity, uh, there's always this notion that sports are good because they bring people together. But sports also bring out the worst in people a lot of times, and, and that includes hating each other uh, viscerally. Um, in the com- in the context of the competition itself, uh, also what surrounds the competition, um, not only the actual sport but also other things related to it. Uh, in fact, I saw the other day the ending of a uh, soccer match between Trinity and Wheaton at Trinity that ended with a brawl <laughs> that was as good as <laughs> I mean, in the negative sense of the number of people involved. Listen, I thought that debate yesterday might have been heading <laughs> that ended up with. A, I mean, this is like enormous brawl. Um, but anyway, I, I just want to come back to something here: is that I um, agree, tend to agree. My inclination would be to tend to agree with Rand that the issue is that these political parties have almost merge and there are so many similarities in them. But at the same time, people say that the, the political situation in the United States is becoming increasingly polarized. So how can we um, uh, kind of like match these two data points, that they look each, like each other in many ways, but at the same time, things are very polarized when it comes to these kind of things. And I would like to add one aspect to it is that when you are in a situation in a country where mobilizing people to vote in the United States of America, it's so difficult uh, compared to other countries, uh, and especially in uh, elections that do not involve the presidential candidates. Turnout is so low. People just not interested and don't show up. Candidates, I'm not defending them, but I'm trying to understand the phenomenon. Uh, In that situation, it's even more important to appeal to people's emotions, to show certain kinds of emotions, uh, because a lot of the voters that vote in these other kinds of elections uh, are voters that are motivated sim- be much more than simply a political program that, you know, I'm going to create this kind of program to incentivize business or these social programs or whatever. I think it has there's something that is part of it is the nature of American politics when it comes to voter turnoff and in terms of turnout. Uh, and, and the way people try to appeal to the most tribal emotions of their supporters. I, I don't know. You know, I mean, I feel as though it's something more primitive than that. And um, actually, uh, Teresa, I bet you saw this too, but I put it up on, on Facebook this week. There was this 
Um, <laughs> this very viral video of these two kangaroos in a suburb in Australia. <laughs> did you see this? I think I don't think I watched it, but I did yeah. see it posted. So, yeah. and it's it's these two kangaroos, and they're 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 boxing one another, and they're just and whoever uh, shot this video um, set it to the Nutcracker Suite, and so and it's very so it's therefore very funny, you know, to watch these two kangaroos, except. What you realize is you're watching two animals fight over territory, whatever, wherever they are. I mean, the fight just goes on and on and on because I, don't, I think it's hard for kangaroos to actually hurt each other. But they're hitting each other, hitting each other, kicking each other, hitting each other, kicking each other. And you realize this is a fight over territory. And, Rand, I think, back to your point, you know, that, that you said through a sort of a Darwinian process, you know, they've, they've turned into these kinds of feral uh, creatures, or maybe they've devolved back into the. They're fighting over a piece of territory. That's to me. That's what you're really seeing is two kangaroos. Instead, there are people actually running for governor or whatever. They're fighting over uh, a piece of territory that only one of them can have. Well, and this has become now so routine and so much our expectation that honestly, um, just to just to put my cards on the table, I think any candidate who came forward in a debate and really didn't behave that way, I probably would consider voting for that person almost no matter what she or he stood for. Now, when, when you watch a debate, there are really two things that you want to know. One, what do you intend to do? And two, who are you? And both of those things are, are important. And uh, you know the, the the what do you intend to do thing can be a checklist that can be rendered in, pretty, in a pretty straightforward way. But the, the debate yesterday answered the question, who are you, in a really, really depressing way because it seemed that bo- each person was absolutely nothing more than his desire to win. And so you know, what, what you want to know out there is what you're desperate is for journalists, questioners, the people structuring the debates to find some way to convey something of the candidate other than their ruthless desire to prevail because that's all that came through yesterday. Well, you also have to think about the kind of people who will even run for office mm. in the first place. And you either have to be so charismatic and likable that people are just going to vote for you. The Bill Clinton thing. The Bill Clintons of the world. Or, you know, n- neither one of these guys is that <laughs> is, is a Bill Clinton. And so you just have to be so cutthroat and ruthless and willing to do whatever it takes Neither to win. Neither are they good, in, good enough to convey mm-hmm. the sense that there's – I mean that, that's mm-hmm. the other option. You can be that ruthless person yeah. but you're well-schooled enough and mm-hmm. supple enough to suggest otherwise. Mm-hmm. But obviously Well, you know, Clint, Clinton's aren't. an interesting example here too for a couple of different reasons. First of all, for the most part – I mean Clinton and Reagan, if they're the two consummate politicians of, of the last 50 years – Neither one of them really kind of would get down and dirty very much with their opponents. You know, it, Reagan would have these kind of cleverly crafted little riposts, you know, when stuff was – things were being said about him being too old. You know, he said uh, – uh, you know, he pointed to Mondale and said, I'm too big a man to uh, call attention to the youth and inexperience of my opponent or something. You know, it's kind of a cute little joke about his age. Clinton, for the most part, you know, I mean, in Clinton now, Clinton and Dole, very close friends now, in touch very regularly. Clinton, of course, famously goes and pals around with Haley Barber and all the people who were trying to destroy him years ago. Seems to be very good anyway at sort of, you know, at getting that back on a different um, uh, footing. It, it just... I just don't want to make excuses for, for, for this kind of political hatred, though. I was talking to this self-same person who had run campaigns and I, who said, well, you know, this is – the reality is it's different. It's different from other stuff because, you know, you really are in a fight and only one of you can, can win. And I thought, well, we're all kind of in, at various times in our lives in situations like – there are a lot of competitive situations. 
you know, and, and, and people don't openly act like that. Maybe behind, maybe it's good that it's all out in the open. Behind the scenes, maybe everybody's that competitive. Actually, Luis, there are sometimes academic feuds that, yes. that burst out into the open yes, and, and people I, really start trash-talking each and, other. And I've been at uh, plenty of academic conferences when situations emerged uh, when people were presenting a paper and either the commentator or someone else in the panel, but more often than not, it's someone from the audience that is responding. You know, it gets really intense. Um, but um, I just want to um, try to suggest that, and, and I think Colin's last comment, uh, the first part of giving the example of Clinton or Reagan and so on, is in, it's, among other things have been important, people have said so far in the panel, but I want to grab onto that one for a second, is that this is not intrinsic to politics. In other words, the behavior that you guys are talking about of these two candidates in the Connecticut gubernatorial race and especially the, the debate yesterday, that is, that is not by itself intrinsic to politics, to political competition. Uh, we, we have plenty of examples, like you were just giving these two examples in the United States. There are many examples in other countries where the intensity of politics uh, the rivalry of politics, in, including situations where the, the, the differences between them, between right-wing people and left-wing people in other countries in the world, is far more apart than in the United States. Um, and they don't resort to that kind of personal attack. So um, is it the personalities of these two individuals? Uh, the, the fact that the race, the last race, uh, Malloy won for what, like six thousand votes only, or whatever. So that makes Foley feel like Fraser uh, thought that he was much better than Ali, and Ali was, uh, you know, belittling him in a, in a very bad way. So maybe Foley feels in in this way that he should have won, and just for a little bit he could have won, and so that intensifies the personality differences. Um, so I, I I think that we need to get to what is in this particular race, these two candidates that we can see that situations like this in other races might be similar. Uh, but we should not part, start from the premise that this is intrinsic to all politics. That's, that's just my concern about the, some, of, some of our analysis of this. Let's grab a call from Mike in Middlefield, who may beg to differ. We'll see. Uh, but I'm sure he won't get personal about it. Hi, Mike. Hi. Um, well, I, I mean, Luis's point is very interesting about the political spectrum in other countries. I think there is something intrinsic about politics in America that says that requires a certain amount of ruthlessness like you don't just amble into being you know a multi-zillionaire like tom foley has by being a nice guy and you don't you know amble into being the whatever twenty-year mayor of stanford like like malloy has by being a nice guy like malloy and foley are both pretty ruthless characters and they're surrounded by a team of ruthless people um, and so i think there's a certain amount of uh... viciousness that requires uh, that, that is needed to get towards the center of power in American life, whether it's political, whether it's financial, whether that's actually the same thing. You know, that's my point. And it's an interesting point. Yeah, go ahead, Rand. There's a certain self-generating culture of political strategy that surrounds these people. If you try to imagine yourself. Um, being uh, a candidate, at least if I do, I imagine myself gradually overwhelmed by people who are telling me, no, you can't say this, you can't do that, you can't express yourself with that straightforwardness. Here are the proven, tested approaches to winning. Now, there's a sense that when you watch the two candidates in a debate like yesterday, there's a sense that each has his hand on this sort of semi-hidden weapon. 
and and is thinking, you know, do I take it out now or, or not? Should I take it out or not? Take? And those weapons consist of various things that they can say about the other person that at some level they feel ambivalent, I believe, about saying. But there's this sense that once the fray starts and, you know, all these are going to be like pugilistic metaphors, if you don't use that, you're going to get beaten up and lose. Now, anyone who happened to see The, the Good Wife the other night, which is a terrific TV show, saw uh, it's about a, a corporate law firm in New York, uh, and and it, it, it had a case in which two opposing law firms had these two guys who were squabbling about a case uh, from a small town. And uh, these two guys decided, because they were sick of their lawyers, to take the case to a, a Christian arbitration. So there was this great scene where they were in a church and this very decent sort of Christian arbitrator was there, the two pl- uh, plaintiffs and defendants, and all the lawyers. And basically the lawyers could not stop squabbling legalistically while meanwhile the like Christian arbitrator and the two other people were sort of working out a solution in goodwill while the lawyers just continued to yak away in the straightforward way. There's a way in which you know, the, the, this fa- fantasy of something like that comes up again and again. If you watch these debates, you think, all right, couldn't you just sort of go over on the side and talk in a really different way from the way that you guys are talking? Yeah, and maybe it's because I grew up in a family where I was always wondering what the actual emotional realities were because nobody would ever tell me. But, you know, I'm always wondering what what the actual emotional realities are. So to Teresa's earlier point, I'm always kind of almost relieved when it's the end of an NFL game and I watch and the players do run together or go to each other's sidelines and suddenly these two people who've really been sort of, you know, attacking each other physically are laughing and joking. And I'm thinking, well, so that's the emotional reality is that when it's all over, that's really good. Uh, You know, know, that they can get along and they kind of understand that, that... that was all just existed on, on the field. I just wanted to tell a really quick story, which is that um, I used to listen to Don Imus. Uh, one day he had uh, Dan Rather on, and Tom Brokaw had just gotten the biggest anchor contract, uh, news anchor contract in the history of television. And, and that's a pretty competitive world. I mean, if you're third in the ratings in that world, you may lose your job. And so they are. They are very competitive with one another. But they also know one another. I mean, I've seen them actually interact. And so... Imus, in his typical fashion, was trying to goad Dan Rather into saying something about this huge contract that Tom Brokaw had gotten. And and Rather cut him off pretty quickly and said, you know, uh, Tom Brokaw had a father uh, who, who, I, who worked with his hands. I met, his, I met Mr. Brokaw one time. He's a man who worked with his hands his entire life. Very proud of his son. Passed away a few years ago because I just wonder how incredibly proud would he be to see this validation, this moment of his son when you know, this kind of unprecedented uh, bestowal of, uh, of esteem by, by any network. And what would that have meant to that man? I was driving my car. Almost, I had tears coming out of my eyes because it's so counterintuitive to this hyper-competitive situation. I know how competitive the broadcast industry was. I even saw it yesterday moderating this debate in which every single local TV station had to have somebody on the panel to ask the questions, and there's a lot of sizing each other up. Just, you know, when you see something else emerge, mm-hmm. like some other, even if Dan Rather is just faking it, you know, I don't care. <laughs> I'm so thrilled to see something emerge other than just sheer aggression. All right. I just hope <laughs> Well, I mean, any form, any form, here's the thing that seems self-defeating about what they're doing. I think everyone understands emotionally that any candidate who succeeds in making you feel 
oh, I'd really like to know him or her. Or, yeah, I, you know, I could imagine having a beer with, the, with this person. I'd like that. Th- that any candidate who manages to get through to that has gotten through to the, inter, the inner sanctum of our affiliations and our, our readiness to form affiliations. So the question then for their strategists is, why are you having them do things that create exactly the opposite effect, that would make you run screaming from the possibility, from, from having to spend two hours with that person? Because right. they discovered that they hate each other's smells. Okay, we, we have to come to the smells. Okay, by the way, our number, uh, it's probably the wrong time for you to call in because you're going to be wrapping this up pretty soon. But We're still sort of talking. But Luis is uh, referring to something that we all read. The, it was a piece by Arthur Brooks uh, who wrote about the fact that there are, there do seem to be these kind of hormonally generated biochemical smells that attach themselves to certain political ideologies. These researchers found evidence, I'm quoting from his piece, that people are instinctively attracted to the smell emitted by those with similar ideologies. In one memorable instance, a female participant asked the scholars if she could take one of the samples home, describing it as the best perfume I ever smelled. The scent came from a man who shared her political views. Just before, a different woman with the opposite views had smelled the exact same sample, declared it rancid, and urged researchers to throw it out. Ideological like-mindedness exerts a biological pull on our attraction, it seems, and deep disagreements can really stink. So it could be that Foley and Malloy just don't like how each other smell, but I, I don't know. Teresa, did you buy this? Well, I, I don't know because I kept thinking – so I remember being in Texas once and hanging out with my cousins who were, who were my age – and, I mean, we were all too young to have political beliefs, really. But I, I distinctly remember thinking how weird they smelled because they live on a, in a border town in Texas. They eat Mexican food pretty much all day long. And I became aware of how different you can smell just because of what you eat, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking, like, how could all the conservatives and all the liberals be eating the same things <laughs> and emitting the same smells? And I, I don't. I mean, I guess I sort of buy it. I mean, if someone wants to bring it home and rub it on themselves as, as perfume, I don't, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, well I, 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 I found the article very enlightening. Um, it made me think that perhaps the next time that people go to a bar instead of trying to talk to each other to see if they find some attraction, we should learn something from dogs. But the only thing in our case <laughs> is that— I've been to bars like that. Yes. <laughs> you know, I think that, yes, me too, is that, you know, we, we should just, uh, as lawyers, you were talking about lawyers, you know, lawyers like to stipulate, as they say. So let's stipulate this, that from now on, having learned this little piece of data, people will have the permission to sh- uh, smell each other's necks. Uh, the way dogs prefer other parts of the body. Maybe even and before the political debate begins. Before the get, political they, debate. They, they, they could each you, do that. Yes, exactly. That's a very good idea, you know, because they're supposed to do a handshake. These two men in the debate, right, at the beginning, did they do that? I, I missed that part. Um, so, it's, you know, the, okay, the handshake, but then, you know, maybe a hug. Well, yes, but you get close to their neck to get a sense of what kind of politics this person. <laughs> and and not only the neck. Yes, because they are, they are different, you know, different flavors like Cut taxes kind of smell or Cut social that, yeah. investment kind of smells, you know. Won't this just make things worse, though? They'll just get all riled up yeah, by like smelling this thing I was, I was thing thinking, that they uh, for example, uh, is, in your case, Colin, is it Irish Spring smell because you're Irish? Uh, <laughs> I have a line of scented candles coming out, like Tom Foley on a foggy night or something. All right, we have to take a break here. We have other things we want to talk about. So we'll take that break. We'll come back.
It's the nose with me today, Luis Figueroa, Rand Cooper, and Teresa Kramer. We talked about a lot of things as we debated what to talk about, including a proposal in New York City uh, where your driver's license and your other documents would be uh, you would be identified by the gender you chose as opposed to the one that your anatomy suggested about you. We talked about uh, the notion of somebody like John Stewart maybe hosting Meet the Press, which was actually contemplated and proposed, and whether that also implied maybe a breaking down of the dichotomy between comedic people and serious people. We we talked about all kinds of interesting things, but boy, today this um, thing popped up in, in our emails. I think it came from Katie Tularski. Uh, it's uh, by David Shaftel uh, of the New York Times. It says, brunch is for jerks. Um, he quotes, among other things, I can't, I can't believe there's a book called The Trouble with Brunch, but apparently there is one in which the author says that the meal brings out the worst in restaurants and their patrons. Chefs bury the dregs of the week's dinners under rich sauces, arranging them in curious combinations. Brunchers treat servers uncharitably, and servers in turn view them with contempt. Um, but the author says there's something more malevolent at work than simply the proliferation of hollandaise sauce that I suspect comes from a packet. Brunch has become the most visible symptom of a demographic shift that has taken place in our neighborhood uh, and others like it. As rents have gone up, the area has become unaffordable to much of the middle class, and young families who want more than two bedrooms can't even afford one. This leaves an increasing number of well-off young professionals who are unencumbered by children, exactly the kind of people who can fritter away Saturday, Sunday, or both over a boozy brunch. Our once diverse neighborhood now brims, brims with the homogeneity of an elite university. Was he running for governor against someone? <laughs> <laughs> I, He's just trashing people. I hate, jer- I hate jerks and I hate brunch. I, I've said for a long time that I think brunch is disgusting, but, uh, but I'm prepared to be disabused of Wait, that notion. What, what about you, brunch exactly? Well, yeah, what disgusting. should I say? Could you describe what is it? Well, with what I think, uh-huh. why I think? Oh, I think it's I think it's disgusting because it's sort of this meal that is designed to impair you. You know, in other <laughs> words, you're going to eat something around eleven thirty, or I don't know when people eat brunch, but whenever it is they eat brunch, they usually have some alcohol with it. That's part of the idea of brunch, right? I mean, it's not sine qua non, but I mean, it's part of the idea is you're going to have some alcohol. So you're going to have a large meal kind of in the early part of the day accompanied by alcohol, and then you're just going to be impaired. You're going to be logy and stupid for the rest of the day. He's so puritanical, isn't he? (laughs) He's from New England. He has to be be getting things done on his Sunday. (laughs) Yeah, I don't enjoy being rendered useless. Uh, I don't know. Well, you said you don't like it because you have to wait too long to eat. I yeah, I I love breakfast. I I don't have any real objection to eating brunch if I wake up late and I just happen to be eating late in the day. But if I'm up at eight o'clock in the morning, I cannot be waiting till eleven thirty to eat brunch. And whoever is my brunch mate is going to have to deal with a very surly Teresa when I show up. And See, for me, I, I'm a I'm not a morning person, mm-hmm. so therefore I don't have you know a lot of times I don't have to wait that long <laughs> for brunch because I just got up like five minutes before time. Well, you I think you also have a Latin convivial sense of this kind of long <laughs> meal, you know, with long leisurely conversations. Yeah, you know, and, I, I like the lumberjack version of it. The lumberjack, the lumberjack venture. So I go to the Quaker diner, yeah. and I, I, you know, I, I went to a some kind of a diner a long time ago, probably in Wisconsin, where um, I had plenty of uh, pancakes, bacon, uh, sausage, 
eggs with toast and home fries. And, and you live to tell about and it. And so, yeah. Quaker <laughs> Diner is not what this writer is talking about. No. Right. The Quaker, no. I mean, this writer is particularly, the, this writer's argument is sort of a classist argument, mm-hmm. right? It, he's basically saying, and I know exactly what he's saying, it's, it's the problem I have with New York City right now, which is that it's overrun with trust, trust fund kids and people who have no real significant purpose in life other than walking around being hipsters and poseurs and annoying people. And they, and they, they can. They can have a two-and-a-half-hour brunch with a couple of mimosas or something much fancier, I'm sure, than a mimosa. And then just, you know, be useless all day because, uh, you know, they, don't, they, uh, they are not called to any strong responsibility. And I suppose this does make well, me sound Well, Governor like Malloy, if you're going to yeah. say that. Well, yeah. there was actually an incident not too long ago that went viral where some trust fund kid, although I think it turned out that he was lying, but he, he wandered out of brunch drunk and, and started harassing. I mean, he may have even gotten kicked out of brunch, which I don't, I don't know how anyone gets that drunk on a mimosa. But um, and then he started yelling about how his father owns half of New York City and he was going to have like the place shut down. And it turned out he wasn't who he claimed he was and he whatever. But it w- he was sort of the epitome of what Colin was. Let, let, let me try about. to excise uh, from the sociology in <laughs> which we have enwrapped it mm-hmm. the the actual issue of brunch as as a meal. You are the restaurant critic here, mm-hmm. after all. Um, first of all, the the writer I didn't I didn't read the article, but the summary that you gave the sort of uh, the perfidious way, the, the contempt with which restaurants treat brunch. It's not just brunch. I remember years ago, I was doing a, a piece on a... Uh, actually, I used to have a little gig for Modern Bride, where mm. I would take honeymoons for them alone mm. uh, and then write about what great honeymoons they would be. <laughs> it was an interesting concept. It was a lonely honeymoon. But I was out in Las <laughs> Vegas, and I was at the Venetian, and there was a restaurant there. I can't remember the name, but it had just been opened up. It's a Thomas Keller restaurant. And uh, the chef was a nice guy. I'd had had dinner there the night before, and I hung out with him a little bit. And I went back the the uh, I went back into the kitchen with him after dinner, and he showed me uh, there were these enormous trays of brioche or whatever it was that they were already soaking in egg for for breakfast and brunch the next day, and and like you know hundreds of portions. And he looked at me and he gave me this look and he said, "I hate breakfast." And he said, all chefs hate breakfast. We make a lot of money on breakfast. There's nothing interesting about anything we make for breakfast. We have to do it. We hate it. So there, there's this sense, I think, for many chefs and many restaurants that anything that's served before dinner time is not really what they would like to be doing. So it's, it's not just brunch. It's breakfast. But I personally am a big breakfast guy. I don't like brunch. One reason is the reason we've mentioned. For me, if I'm going to start drinking, whenever in the day I start <laughs> drinking, I would like to continue drinking mm-hmm. from that point to whenever it is I go to <laughs> yeah, sleep. Uh, yeah. well, 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 Otherwise, so you'll just go if to it's sleep eleven o'clock, the there's a big logistical and health-related problem. <laughs> That's why for me it's five o'clock and later. But before you break in, Luis, and tell me what a Puritan I am, which <laughs> I probably am. Um, but but uh, but also I, I, for me, there's a mix. I don't like. The mixing of categories. This probably re- reveals me as whatever my political affiliation, as some sort of temperamental conservative. I like to know breakfast is the things that Luis described. It's pancakes. It's bacon. It's eggs. And if you start putting in a lot of savory stuff and then desserts and making it into a full-fledged meal, I actually don't want to be eating that at 10.30 in the morning. Well, I wanted to ask you guys one something because this is a part that I'm really lost at. What is this association between brunch and drinking alcohol? 
I mean, have I, I been? I think I might I been, be able to explain that. Have I been in a, living in a cave in this country for the last 30 years? Uh, I mean, I, I don't. I mean, yes, some sometimes in special circumstances, in like certain kinds of hotels, I've had brunch where there were mimosas, or bloody marys, like bloody marys. But but for me, I mean, I don't make that direct. Uh, necessary connection between brunch and alcohol that you guys are making here. I'm really surprised, to be I, honest. I do think it's, I mean, I think, well, I, I would say that you are conflating a late breakfast, a late riser's breakfast with brunch. Okay. I think there's something inherent in you the brunch. You lumberjack, that, yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes, and you can't, I, can you have brunch at a breakfast restaurant? You can't, right? So if you just go to a diner at 11 o'clock, that's not brunch. You have to go to a restaurant that is, you know, not open for breakfast six days a week on a Sunday and eat their brunch. And right. It and has to be very specific. And in, and, and in some cities, the writer makes this point, in some cities, New York notably, if you get up in the morning and have breakfast the way God intended you to do, <laughs> uh, and then come noon you want lunch, you can't get it because everybody is serving brunch. All, all the <laughs> restaurants in your neighborhood is serving this brunch thing, you know, that is this and that Benedict and various perversions of French toast. Well, it also confuses you for the rest of the day. That, to me, the, the problem with brunch is that it's, it's a little confusing. I mean, if I'm going to have brunch, I'm not going to want to have had breakfast before it because you're obviously not going to – by the way, we get up at 6 o'clock in my house. I have a young child, so that's logistically problematic. So I'm not going to have breakfast. And then if I have the brunch and it stretches out, and there's usually a lot of food available, and I have a lot of it – Am I really going to want to have dinner later on? Well, that's going to seem superfluous and gluttonous. So then brunch sort of becomes the one meal of that day, which I find a little bit bewildering. Now, I, I would say this now because now I, I'm beginning to kind of like think a little bit different. Not that I'm going to hate brunch, <laughs> the way to describe it. But here's one thing. How common is it in this country for people to have lunch with alcohol? Not brunch, lunch. Less and less. I mean, certainly over the course of, of a business week, much, much less uh, common than it used to be. But I think having brunch with alcohol has kind of replaced the business replaced lunch that. in some ways. Yes, because in Puerto Rico, for example, a lot of people have uh, you know a beer uh, or a drink for lunch. I mean, even business meetings or whatever kind of thing is very, very common. Where here, I don't see it, but maybe it's because I came here too late. The so-called yeah, three martini lunch has died. Hey, we should uh, shift gears here. Uh, but uh, just remember, say no to brunch, all right? It's not, a good, not good for you, not good for anybody. Um, all right, so our, our final, I think probably will be our final topic, is one that I think Teresa sent over, so she'll have to start it off here. It has to do with a gathering in Los Angeles, I believe yesterday, um, yeah. where, um, and it was hosted by Gwyneth Paltrow. She interviewed, uh, she introduced President Obama at this Los Angeles fundraiser on Thursday, uh, and she said uh, to him, you're so handsome, I can't speak properly. Uh, and then just shunted herself off to the sidelines. To, and, and, and so you, I think you uh, used the term objectifying the president. Yes. Well, you know what? Made, this made me think of quite some time ago on this show. We talked about President Obama calling the um, attorney, general. attorney general of California the, mo the most attractive attorney general around and whether or not that was sexist and yada, yada, yada. And so I felt like this was sort of a role reversal in which he was being objectified by a Hollywood starlet. And uh, is it the end of sexism? I don't know. But it, it, well, I'm joking, obviously. But um, but yeah, that's what that's what it made me think of. 
Well, and I mean, there's precedence for this, too. I mean, Nina Burley famously wrote this piece about Clinton where she kind of did reduce him to whatever musky odor uh, he was giving <laughs> off uh, and, and just sort of talked about the, like how, how could any woman not melt in his presence, uh, which struck people as wrong on about 80 different counts. But um, I don't know, Rand, anything wrong with sexually objectifying the president of the United States? <laughs> he does it on a regular basis. Um. <clears throat> Well, you know, when Clinton famously talked about his underwear uh, on <laughs> national television, it seemed— In response to a question. In response to a question. From, but the qu- from uh, Tabitha, Tabitha Soren? The question and answer together seemed to open a new door in relationships between the voter and, uh, <coughs> and the recipient of, of the vote. So, I mean, it's inevitable that it happens. It probably doesn't happen more often because— how can I put this delicately? Um, I wouldn't say necessarily that really good looks are distributed uh, among the political class with the same generosity that they are in other sectors of the popu- population, surprisingly. Well, what's the the old saw is that uh, politics is Hollywood for ugly people or right. something like that. It's um, actually kind of surprising given the way our society works. For, for instance, given the fact that if you're going to be a news anchor, uh, in addition to whatever journalistic skills you have, you're probably going to have to look kind of hot, especially if you're a woman. Um, it's kind of surprising that that there aren't more glam politicians, don't you think? I mean, do we distrust well, them if they're I, too good looking? I'm also wondering, you know, I mean, you're Gwyneth Paltrow. I mean, Obama is certainly a good looking man, especially for the career he is in. But uh, you're Gwyneth Paltrow and you've <laughs> probably made out I, she dated Brad Pitt at one point. Right. So now she's all a fluster by Obama. But. I think that has as much to do with his charisma and his power as what he actually looks like. She's just like, ooh, this man can change the world. That's an, that's <laughs> yeah. an, excellent, that's an excellent point because mm-hmm. um, someone told me that the people used to talk about the Kissinger yeah. effect. Right. Can you you describe that for me, please? Well, he would date these fabulous looking women like Jill St. John. And uh, he said he himself said power is the ultimate power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. (laughs) Um, I was always with pretty women whenever possible. But I'm just thinking, you know, is there is there sort of a double standard and and is the double standard okay? Because it is absolutely the case that when President Obama objectified the attorney general of California, a lot of people thought that was wrong. You know, that the, the fact whether she's great looking or not is completely irrelevant. The only question is, is she a good attorney general? Um, uh, on the other hand, there's something cute, I think, about Gwyneth Paltrow saying something like that. That's But could it be also a result of the changes in gender uh, relations um, in, in the last you know, 40, 50 years that it's now more openly acceptable for women to openly um, objectify men or for men uh, to objectify men when they're attracted to them um, than it was in the past when, you know, patriarchally it was only the men who could say those things about women. So maybe things are changing and that's part of it. I mean, that uh, people can say those things openly. And why not objectify people in, in that sense? Well, I mean, Scott I'm just, Brown I'm just trying to be Scott Brown? Yeah. What about, I mean, just that he's hot? We, well, yeah. I mean, he objectified. Wasn't he like in a, in a, in a you know, centerfold he, spread or something? When he, he has was... made no effort to, to not use that aspect of right. himself. But I think that, then the question is, doesn't it reside in the area of choice? In other words, 
you know, it's one thing to choose to be and to market oneself based on one's appearance. But when certainly when men reduce women to their appearance, even if they're the attorney general of California, there's something dismissive about that. I mean, there's the implied pat on the bottom. Boy, you're a great looking little attorney general. Uh, but maybe they're just be, maybe because the scales still haven't recalibrated. You can do that with a man and it's not dismissive. I don't know. You get you have to finish this because you started it. <laughs> well, I, oh, I, I have a hard time believing it's totally dismissive in either case, right? I don't think Obama's making a case that she should be the attorney general because she's good looking. No, that's not what he's saying. He was making a joke at the expense of the other attorney generals, really, is what was going on there. And in this, I mean, in this case, I, I, it wasn't dismissive. It was cute and it was a silly Hollywood f- fundraiser. So. Uh, you know, who's saying anything important there, really? Even the president probably didn't say that much that was all that important. So I, I don't think it's offensive. It's just kind of funny. All right. So uh, we have to stop there. I would like to say I find George Jepson uh, well-muscled and attractive. Um, I just don't want him to feel like he's not as attractive as the Attorney General of California. All right. So we have to move on, and we will come back with endorsements. Don't worry if they're true or not. The truth is I don't care. And as for me, flattery will get you everywhere. I don't eat the normal meal cycle. I eat brunch, liner, and potainer, which is eating Ben and Jerry's peanut butter jam session directly out of the container at 2 a.m. while sobbing uncontrollably. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is John Francois. Sir Ray Hardman appeared in our intro, and Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Chris Martin. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton show staff eating mushroom popovers with hollandaise sauce off the naked back of Stevie Nicks, visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday's show, Against Football writer Steve Almond returns to discuss reactions to his book and to talk about his essay, What I Learned from Teaching a Sex Writing Class. And now, back to Colin. Oh, my goodness. Where are we going with our thoughts? All right. So uh, we have to do endorsements pretty darn quick here, but we have plenty of time. Endorsements, uh, an idea we've stolen from Slate Culture Gab Fest. Things you might enjoy if you knew about them. Well, you're going to know about them now. You start, Teresa Kramer. Uh, I would like to endorse Serial, the new podcast spinoff of This American Life. I'm obsessed with it, and I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have to wait till next Friday to hear the next episode, but it's great. And a new show on ABC called Blackish. It's kind of cheesy in a um, sitcom-y sort of way, but I, I really like it. It's funny. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I like to endorse very quickly. The first one is Sarah Silverman on SNL last weekend. People who didn't uh, catch this trying to find some outlet where you can find Sarah Silverman on the last Saturday Night Live. It, uh, I, I would I'll second that endorsement. I, I really thought, I mean, I think that Saturday Night Live has become pretty flaccid uh, over the years. I don't think the humor on it is very sharp. And it was a lot funnier. You can just tell she wrote a lot of sketches. Absolutely. And that took many more risks than that show was absolutely. typically willing to do. I loved it. So, because it's become boring in recent years anyway. So, But I want to endorse also a charity event tomorrow night, tomorrow Saturday night, uh, featuring two of the people sitting around this table. Uh, the, the Women and the Curse of a second annual fashion event with the Mexican-American fashion designer Mondo from Winner of Project Runway. It will be featuring Colin also, uh, not a fashion designer, but no. uh, as a fashion, one of the fashion judges. Um, and we will say, get to see what his states in fashion are. Uh, that will be tomorrow night at 7 p.m. at the new uh, country motor cars dealership on 
Number one, Western Street in Hartford. Uh, that's tomorrow night at 7. Tickets are still available. You can go to uh, buy them online through aids-ct.org or at the door. And again, that's tomorrow night at 7 p.m. All right. But uh, actually, that, that even event. got endorsed last week. This is oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. So, right, I didn't let's know. move on to Rand here. Twice a year, there is a great arts and crafts festival in Northampton called Paradise City. It's this weekend, tomorrow, and Sunday. It's a very, very high level of everything from, from handmade furniture to painters to, uh, to jewelry. My sister, Carrie Jacobson, who is a terrific landscape painter and a boldly expressionistic style, is there. We always go. It's terrific. The other thing I'd recommend is a week from Monday on the 20th at Real Artways is the final installment of a culinary series that we've been that I'm hosting there called Taste and we watch a 45 minute video of a, a French chef in action and then a local chef discusses that video and then cooks some sort of snack food and this this chef is named John Hudak and he's from Cafe Mantic a great great restaurant in Willimantic that's go to the Real Artways website Monday the 20th Taste at Real Artways well if people go to the Paradise uh, Valley or whatever that's called Paradise it's, City yeah Paradise City I've been to that that's really great but you should be giving them a restaurant recommendation where are they going to eat while they're up there in Northampton uh, in Northampton, you know, I'm not crazy about the Northampton restaurant scene. I would go over to Amherst and go to the Lumberyard. All right. There you go. Um, I'm going to endorse uh, – I'm also going to endorse a television show, and that is Gotham. And you have to be sort of a, you know, former comic book geek to really dig Gotham. You don't like Gotham. All right. I started watching it. I can take it. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, well, it, you're young and disgruntled. Right. It takes, it takes place in the time before the Batman saga begins. So you never see Batman. You see Bruce Wayne as a, as a little a bereaved little boy. And you see the other people who are going to contribute to this, this story uh, building up. It has this great uh, actor who was in Southland, uh, and he now plays James Gordon. He's terrific and exciting, and uh, I'm totally hooked on the series. Um, uh, as long as we're endorsing things this weekend, uh, I will be, assuming I'm still alive then, uh, appearing in Nightfall and then running over to the event that Luis is talking about. Nightfall, of course, takes place in Cold Park. It is Ann Coverley's incredible extravaganza. It's one of the things that's absolutely unique to Hartford. I don't think anybody has anything quite like it. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, and so please come. I don't what, know how to describe what, it. Exactly. What is that? That's, it'll be earlier in the evening on Saturday. Okay. Um, and then um, one last thing to read. You have to dig back through The New Yorker or go online. Uh, William Finnegan uh, in The New Yorker wrote an uh, article about maybe six weeks ago called The Man Without a Mask, How the Drag Queen Cassandra Became the Star of Mexican Wrestling. I don't have time to do this justice. It is so good. It is one of those great New Yorker articles that's really about a lot of things at once. He's a it's, great reporter, William yeah, Finnegan. Yeah, he's just, it's got so much incredible detail. It really introduces you specifically to the world of Mexican wrestling. And uh, I just, I can't, uh, it was one of the best, got to be one of the best magazine articles. got to read that because I grew up watching that. Yeah. Of <laughs> Of the year. So thanks very much to Rand, to Luis, and Teresa. We'll be back on Monday with a scramble. Yes, I'll have the Eggs Benedict made with jamon iberico and duck eggs with a Veuve Clicquot orange cream mimosa. I'm sorry, we don't serve alcohol here. What? Then I just ordered breakfast. I'm out of here.